it's always great to examine the greatness of God. You get a fresh look at his greatness. I think sometimes, you know, that word is used so loosely out here in man's world. Sometimes uh, a reporter will be interviewing a coach uh, about their opposing team, and he said, well, they've got a great quarterback and a great defense, and, and boy, do they have a, a great running back. And my question is, why are they 0 at 8? If they got a great coach, great quarterback, great defense, great running back, why are they 0 and 8? There's a lack of greatness here somewhere. <laughs> but that's how loose man uses that word all the time. But when it comes to God and God's word, that word uh, is never used loosely. I always check it out, how great God is and everything that he does. Appreciate the message this morning. Um, in the book of 2 Corinthians, in the first three verses of chapter 11, Paul expresses his great concern that the false teachers, deceivers, and false apostles that existed in Paul's day would come among the Corinthians and would corrupt their minds from the simplicity that's in Christ. Now, there is simplicity in Christ, and I want you to think about that this morning. That just came on my mind very strong yesterday. You know, in preaching at Testament Church on Friday night, I had to uh, determine what I thought the Lord had me to preach on, so I did that, and then had to do the same thing Saturday morning, and then the same thing Saturday afternoon, and I said, well, we've got, got Sunday morning at Bethel, Lord. What would you have me to speak on this morning? And tried to pray that he would impress upon my mind uh, what would be suitable and, and needful for this particular congregation. And this thought just came to my mind again, how so many people try to complicate the things of God and the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And Paul was so concerned about this, he referred to the time when the serpent, you know, deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden through his subtlety. That means through his craftiness. And he was concerned that the deceivers and false apostles that existed in abundance, it seemed like in his day, would come among the Corinthians and corrupt their minds from the simplicity that's in Christ. Let's think about that this morning when it comes to our relationship with God and our salvation, how simple it is when you read and study the scriptures, the word of God, if you just simply uh, pay attention to what is being said and do a little word definitions. Now, when you read the scriptures, you're going to read about words like election and predestination, justification, reconciliation, redemption, atonement, ransom. And all these may seem like big words because these are words that we don't use normally in our everyday conversation. But these are biblical words that represent biblical doctrine. And they all harmonize together. They all fit together very nicely. And when you understand it, it's, it's just pretty simple. And I think it's pretty simple to understand if you study God's word with truth being the utmost thing of you know, importance in your efforts. Now, when it comes to the doctrine of election, for example, that word is used a combination of 27 times in the scriptures. It just simply means that before time began, God elected his children. That's why you're a child of God today, because it pleased God to have a family. And we go to Ephesians 1.4, for example, and it says, According as he has chosen you in him, chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world. 
Your relationship with God didn't just start sometime during your earthly journey. Your relationship with God started before the creation. It started before the world began. It started before the foundation of the world. Amen. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So when you start studying your relationship with God, you've got to go back in time. You've got to go back before time ever began. That's where your history begins with God. God foreknew you, and he shows you that's what election is all about. Now, I can't spend a lot of time on, on each one of these here, or we wouldn't get to them all, but I want to just say a little bit about a number of things concerning the doctrine of God's wonderful grace. Now, in Romans 8.33, Paul asked a question. Who is he, uh, or can anybody lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God's elect that's under consideration, and he said, can anybody lay a charge to them? He said, it is God that justifieth. If God has justified his elect, then nobody can lay a charge to them. No one can do that. They stand now in the sight of God, perfect, harmless, holy, and sinless. Now, the word justify literally means to declare righteous. And it's a wonderful subject taught in the Word of God. We look in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, and Paul says, Moreover, being justified by his blood, we shall be saved by his life from the raft, or we shall be saved from the raft to come. Now, righteous raft is coming at the end of time, but the Lord's elect have been saved from that. You've been saved from that through the justifying blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's pretty simple, isn't it? Paul said, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Now, in Colossians 3.12, Paul says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. You are God's elect. Election is unconditional election, which means God elected you based not upon some conditions you may have performed in life, but rather because he loved you and was according to the good pleasure of his will to do so. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, Take the word predestination, for example. Uh, a lot of people seem like they're really afraid of that word. It's a wonderful word. teaches a, a three great wonderful truths. Notice in verse 5 of Ephesians 1. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his own will. Now, what's complicated about that? Now, it follows verse 4, where we said already, according he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, having predestinated us. The word predestinated means that you, God, has prearranged your destination. And your destination is heaven itself. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his own will. He says he predestinated you unto the adoption of children. The wonderful subject of adoption. I was speaking to a good friend of mine a couple days ago. I've been working with some. And I, I asked him, I said, uh, let's just think about adoption just for a moment. I said, what's required for you to be able to adopt somebody? I said, well, you've you got to go to the adoption agency. You've got to find out everything you've got to do. You've got to find out what all the legal requirements are to adopt a child. And before you can adopt a child, you've got to satisfy those legal requirements, right? Oh, yes, yes. I said, the day finally comes that you go to adopt a child. Now, I want to ask you this question. 
Do you choose the child or does the child choose you? Simple. He said, well, the, the child chooses you. I said, that's exactly right. And you belong to the Lord on the basis of adoption. And you didn't choose God to be adopted into his family, but God chose you to be adopted into his family. In the book of Romans 8, 14 and 15, Paul says, For many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you've not received the Spirit again, uh, under, uh, you've not received the Spirit again to bondage unto fear. Brother, you received the Spirit of adoption whereby you cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba means Father. And when the Spirit of God enters into your heart and borns you the Spirit of God, that's when you first cry out to God in sincerity, for that's the first time that that you are going to ever recognize that you are a sinner by nature. Listen to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that was under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your heart, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. Notice, because you are sons, you're already sons. You're sons based upon unconditional election. And now when Christ sends his spirit into your heart where you cry, Abba, Father, you now are taken out of the family of Adam and placed into the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what adoption is. It's being taken out of one family and put into another family. Now I want to ask you this morning, have you compared these two families lately? Have you thought about Adam's family? Have you thought about the family of the Lord Jesus Christ? Adoption takes you out of Adam's family, puts you over into his family, you see. And God does that. You didn't choose to have that happen. God did that. All right? So he says in Ephesians 1.5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, according to the good pleasure of the will of Christ. Now, I think that's something we ought to be real happy about and rejoice in. Who could complain about that, that predestination involves you being adopted into the family of Christ. Ephesians uh, 1 and 11. In whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now Paul says God works all things after the counsel of his will. And in this case here, you have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to him who does that. Predestination involves an inheritance. Peter describes this inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1 as being undefiled, incorruptible, undefiled, and fadeth not away. That doesn't describe any kind of inheritance that you've ever known anything about or heard about here in this life. Inheritances oftentimes are squandered. Inheritances oftentimes are just run through in just a very short period of time. Sometimes people obtain an inheritance by corruption, and corrupt means one thing and another. But the inheritance of God, my friends, is incorruptible, it's undefiled, it fades not away, and it's there for you based on the doctrine of predestination. That God has prearranged, predetermined your destination to be with Him in glory one day as an adopted child and to obtain this inheritance. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Paul says, moreover, brother, moreover whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, is that difficult to understand? You just got to believe what you read, right? You know, I was talking to Brother 
Dwight Dyer, the pastor at Testament Church, and many years ago, before he became a primitive Baptist, uh, with the people he was with, the, the pastor wrote about eight pages trying to explain what Paul did not say in Ephesians chapter 1. <laughs> trying to explain what he didn't say. Rather than just believing what he did say. But he didn't believe what Paul wrote. He had to try to figure out some way or another to present that in a way to show what he did not mean. Let me tell you what Paul meant in Ephesians 1-4 right quick. I'm going to take eight pages to do it. I'll take eight seconds. According as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. You know what Paul said? Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Now, that didn't even take eight seconds, did it? I don't need eight pages to try to tell you what he didn't say. I'm going to take eight seconds to tell you what he did say. Now, that's very simple, I think, right? It's just very simple. Your history goes back before time ever began when God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world and predestinated you unto the adoption of children predestinated you to obtain an inheritance and predestinated you to be conformed to the image of his son. That will happen at the end of time, the second coming of Christ, when he returns to this world and resurrects the bodies of the saints of God and we'll be reunited with body, soul, and spirit with the Lord in the air. You'll be glorified then and you'll be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Have I said anything that's complicated so far? Isn't that pretty simple? I, I think it's pretty simple. Election, predestination. Let's go back to the subject of justification just for a moment. Romans 5 and 9 again, being justified, no more of being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, I'm not going to take time this morning to teach you on the three phases of justification. There is justification by blood eternally, and there's justification by faith and justification by works. But I'm just dealing with the first one justification eternally, justification by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, being justified. Now, I want you to know some of these words that I'm going to present to you this morning. They always end in E-D. They always end in E-D because this is not an open-end thing. This is a completed thing. Being justified, E-D, by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Again, Romans 8, 33. Who shall lay anything to charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. 1 Peter 3 and 18, he said, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. By nature, we're unjust. How do we become just? Because the just one, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I appreciate this remark I preached probably about, oh, 12, 15 years ago when we were down on Gallatin Road. I made this statement after church. Brother Leland gave me a little, a little uh, nice little nugget. When I made mention of this, he came through the handshake and said, Now just remember, there's just one, just one. <laughs> now, I hadn't forgot that, Brother Leland, I mentioned it many different times. There's just one, just one, and because of this just one, spelled with a capital J, the elect family of God now are just in the sight of God. That's pretty simple. It means to be declared righteous. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, Paul says, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. For he was made sin to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now this is called the doctrine of imputation. Now don't let words like this scare you away. It's, it's real simple. I want you to remember this is real simple. When the Lord Jesus Christ hung upon Calvary, as the Son of God, he represented God. As a Son of Man, he represented man. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
There's not more than one mediator. It's just one mediator. It's a man. His name is Jesus. Between God and men, as he hung upon that cross as a son of God, he represented God as a son of man, he represented man. The great mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that mediator satisfied God's righteous demands of his law. And his righteousness was then charged or transferred to those that he represented, the elect of God. And then the sins of the family of God were transferred or imputed over here to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how God can see you in his sight as being perfect, holy, righteous, undefiled, without sin, because he sees you through his son. Is that simple? I think, to me, that's simple. <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful truth, a simple truth, that the Lord Jesus Christ carried my sins, his own body on the tree of the cross, the sins of all the family of God, his elect, and when he presented them to the Father, my friends, they were put away as far as the east is from the west. That's a long ways. If you start traveling east, you'll always travel east. You'll never start traveling west. The same thing if you travel west, you'll always travel west. But that doesn't work with north and south. That's why you use east and west. That's how far your sin has been put away. They've been put away behind the back of God. When it comes to justification, you stand before God as righteous, based upon the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty simple. Now let's go to the next verse there in Romans 5, 9, and 10. He says, Moreover, being justified by his blood, but shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled, E.D., reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now we've got the subject of reconciliation. Reconciliation and justification work hand in hand, very harmonious. They mean different things. But everything I'm going to tell you right here from a legal perspective takes place on the cross. We'll get to something later called that which is vital. But right now we're looking at the legal aspects of your salvation, how simple it is. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Therefore we shall be saved by his life. Over in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says in verse 18, For God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Now God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling a world that's under consideration, the world of God's elect. He was reconciling them unto himself as our great mediator. To reconcile means to bring two parties together, right? In verse 11 here in Romans chapter 5 brings to our attention a word that's used one time in the Bible. It's called atonement. Let's go back and get this now. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, shall be saved by his life. He says, moreover, we joy in the fact that we have now received the atonement. Now, word atonement, when you break it hyphenated out, it goes like this, at one mint. That means through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the atoning blood that he shed, you that were enemies separated from God have now been brought together in one in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that's complicated. I think that's very simple. As it says sometimes, you have to have somebody deliberately mess you up and teach you otherwise for you to miss it. So we have now received the atonement. The ransom price has been paid. Justification, reconciliation. Take a look at Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 
So here's another doctrine taught in God's Word, a great doctrine of grace. We've looked a, a little bit at justification. We've looked a little bit at reconciliation. And now we'll take a look here at redemption. Now for redemption to take place, and by the way, the word redemption means prior ownership. You cannot redeem something that you didn't own in the beginning. You go out to a pawn shop and try to you know, get something, redeem something in there. You can only redeem what you put in there to begin with. You can't go and get anything else. It denotes prior ownership. And we belong to God. He says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, in order to be redeemed, you've got to have a redeemer, right? So this, where do we find this redeemer at? The oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. And I say the oldest book. The time period he lived in is the oldest time period that's been recorded. Job lived at a time when he didn't have the benefit of 66 books called the Bible. He didn't have that. But he did have the benefit of serving a God who could reveal things to him without a Bible. God did that and can do that, but in this day and age, that's not his normal way of doing things. His normal way of thinking is revealing things to us from his Bible. So here's what Job said in Job 19.25. He said, I know my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. Job said, I got a Redeemer, and I know he lives. Why did Job have a Redeemer? Because he knew he had to be redeemed. Job couldn't redeem himself. Job was a very wealthy man in the very beginning, extremely wealthy man, but all his possessions put together could never redeem him. He had to have a Redeemer. And this Redeemer's name is Jesus Christ. I know my Redeemer liveth. Notice how personal this is. I know my Redeemer liveth. It's kind of like Mary when she made this statement. She says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit rejoiceth in God my Savior. Why did she say that? Because she was a sinner in need of a Savior. A lot of people try to make Mary immaculate, try to make Mary sinless. Mary wasn't sinless. She wasn't immaculate. <laughs> or she wouldn't have said what she just said. My soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit rejoiceth in God my Savior. If he's her Savior, that means she needed to be saved, and her Savior was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day. To redeem something, a price has to be paid. In this case, it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was justification based on? Based on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is redemption based on? It's based on the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come up here to Hebrews 9 and 12, and Paul says, Neither by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood, he hath obtained, E.D., eternal redemption for us. Redemption is not temporary. Redemption is eternal. And it's obtained by the Lord Jesus Christ through his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats. Paul's writing to Hebrew Christians who are acquainted with animal sacrifices, and the shedding of blood in the Old Testament day that was shed abundantly back then, but all that blood together never redeemed one child of grace, one child of God, and never put away one sin. But the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ put away all the sins of God's children, his family, his bride, his elect. I think it's pretty simple. What we're talking about justification, reconciliation, or what we're talking about redemption. What about sanctification? That's one of them big words, so to speak. Sanctification simply means to set apart for a godly and spiritual use. 
In the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. There's your elect once again. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit and obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Here we're told that God's elect are sanctified, set apart by the Spirit of God. In the book of Jude, verse 1 of chapter 1, Sometimes I don't like to say chapter 1. That might indicate another chapter, but there's only one chapter in Jude. <laughs> if you're trying to find Jude chapter 2, you'll be looking a long time. It's not there. Okay, so we're talking about the first verse of the book of Jude. Jude, the brother of James, or the brother of uh, Jude, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them who are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Now here we're told that you're sanctified by the Father. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he says you're sanctified by the Spirit. I look in Hebrews 10, 10, and Paul says, for we've been sanctified by the body of Christ once for all. Now, we're talking about the eternal sanctification of God's people. Here we find it's, you know, the Bible says it's by the Father, it's by the Son, and it's by the Holy Spirit, and all three of those are true. Look at Hebrews 10, 14. Wherefore, by one offering he hath perfected forever. Them what? That are sanctified. Them that are set apart. So when did God the Father set you apart? He set you apart before time ever began. He set you apart before the foundation of the world. He set you apart from Adam's, in Adam's race, from Adam's race and gave you to his son in a covenant relationship. Then the Lord Jesus Christ represented you on Calvary's cross. You were sanctified by Christ by shedding his blood on Calvary. And then sometime in your earthly experience, the Holy Spirit came along and borns you of the Spirit of God and set you apart from that perspective. So you've been set aside by the Father, by the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. That's what sanctification is all about. I think it's pretty simple. To me, it's pretty simple. And I love Hebrews 10, 14 once again. For but one offering, how many offerings? One. The book of Hebrews is just about one offering. It's mentioned over and over and over again, just one offering. Wherefore, but one offering, he, Christ, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You like the word forever? I like the word forever. The word forever means forever. I saw I give you that definition of it. The word forever means forever. It means nothing is ever going to change that. Nothing is ever going to uh, disrupt that, change that, overturn that, overthrow that. It, it's forever. By one offering. I mean, with just one offering. He made an offering to the Father. You know, uh, the world tries to present Christ as making an offering to the human race. It never happened. Christ made an offering to the Father. He didn't offer himself to you. He didn't offer himself to me. He didn't offer himself to the world, to the general population. He offered himself to the Father. Look at uh, Hebrews 9, 14. He says here that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offers himself with according to the eternal spirit unto the Father, shall purge you from dead works to serve the true and living God. You, he, was all, he offered himself to the Father. And the Father received the offering and the sacrifice, and that made you perfect, and you made you perfect forever. This is pretty simple to me. I don't want your minds corrupted from the simplicity that's in Jesus Christ. It boils down to this. You belong to God because God first loved you, and chose you in Christ before time ever began. He predestinated you to be conformed to the image of his Son, to obtain an eternal inheritance. 
He sent his son in this world to save you from your sins. To do that, you had to be justified. That took place by the blood of Christ. You had to be reconciled. That took place through the life of Christ, the death of Christ. You had to be redeemed. That required the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that takes place on Calvary. Here are the legal aspects of your salvation. You know when God's people were saved? They were not saved before the foundation of the world. You hear that every now and then. That's not right. God's family was not saved before the foundation of the world. They were chosen before the foundation of the world. They were loved before the foundation of the world. They were named before the foundation of the world. They were given to the Lord Jesus Christ in a covenant relationship before the foundation of the world. But in Adam's transgression, his children that he gave to Christ, they fell under the law of sin and death, just like everybody else did. Therefore, they needed a Savior. And the Savior came to this world to satisfy the legal requirements of salvation to satisfy a righteous and holy God. So Jesus Christ came as a qualified one. He came as a sinless one, the righteous one, the holy one. He came as the great God. And the Lord Jesus Christ lived for 33 and a half years on this earth and never committed one sin. Not one sin. He never sinned in his mind. He never sinned in his thoughts. He never sinned by transgression. He never sinned by omission or commission. He never sinned inwardly, outwardly. He never sinned. And therefore, when he's hanging on the cross, he's the Lamb of God that's making an offering to the Father. And I know the Father accepted the offering because once he was taken off the cross, he was put into a barred tomb. And guess what happened 72 hours later? Guess what happened three days and three nights later? He came out of the tomb. That's the evidence that he was truly the Son of God and God received his offering, received his sacrifice when he resurrected his son from the grave. From a legal perspective, all God's children were delivered and saved from their sins through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. There they were justified, they there were reconciled, there they were redeemed, therefore they became, you know, the work of atonement took place and the ransom price was paid all on Calvary. What about a vital sense? When it comes to the vital sense of your salvation, we're talking about being regenerated. We're talking about being born of the Spirit of God. And the Lord in His Word gives us several different examples and illustrations how this takes place. Let's go look at Romans 8.29 again for a moment. Moreover, whom He, God, predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. Now notice this. He said, them that he predestinated, them he also called. That word call right there means that they will be spoken to by the voice of the son of God sometime between their conception and their death when Christ calls them. And what kind of call is this? It's a life-giving call. It's a call where you're raised again from that state of death and sin to a state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. He does this without failure. Who does he call? Well, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of the Son, and more than he predestinated, them he also called. He called them and he predestinated, he predestinated those that he foreknew. And those that he called, he also justified. Notice how all these words in and E D, and it sounds like it's a work. All this is a work that's already been completed. Some of it has, some of it has not. The calling, for example. I believe God still has children that are going to be called by His grace down the road in the future. Somebody said, Brother Lawrence, why does God continue to allow this world to exist? Why does God continue to allow this world to continue on with all the evil, all the corruption, all the wickedness, 
all the immorality, all the blasphemy and everything else that's going on in this world today, why does God continue to let it exist? I'm going to give you one reason at least. God is not going to bring time to an end until the last heir promise is conceived in his mother's womb and he borns that child again from above. I can assure you that. Now once that happens, watch out. <laughs> when that happens, watch out. But this world will not come to an end until the last heir promise, the last elect child is conceived in his mother's womb and then sometime between that conception and the death of that individual, God will see to it that he's born or she shall be born of the Spirit of God. This doctrine of grace is the one thing that takes care of aborted children. Do you ever think about that? God's grace is not going to be denied. God's grace will reach down into the womb of a woman who's going to have a child aborted. If it's his child, and I believe that it is, he's going to see to it that child is born of the Spirit of God before that child leaves this world. Praise God for that. To live in a wicked world like we do, where people take life so carelessly and just look at it as being nothing, that put, uh, don't put any value on life, I'm telling you, God is going to see to it that every child that belongs to him is going to come uh, uh, into eternal life by the life-giving voice of the Lord Jesus Christ without the loss of one. I think that's simple. Aren't you? Don't you? And they are called from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ. Ephesians 2.1 And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. When he quickens somebody, he quickens those that are dead and he makes them alive. Colossians 1, 12 and 13, he says he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, when something is translated, you got a translator and something translated, that which is translated is passive, the translator is active. In Ephesians 2, 1, and you hath he quickened, he's the one who does the quickening, he's active, the person being quickened is passive. In John 5, 25, the Lord said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming now as when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That person that's dead who shall hear the voice of the Son of God, he's going to do something that he can't, you know, a dead person can't do anything except hear the voice of the Son of God. He can do that. He will hear the voice of the Son of God, and Christ shall speak. That soul shall hear. It shall live. It's passive. That person's passive in the work. Jesus Christ is the one that's active. That's what the Lord is teaching you here. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You know how many creators there are? Just one. How many times you hear people say, well, you know, he just created a masterpiece. Maybe he built something, painted something. Photograph something. He created a masterpiece. Man never created anything. He takes that which has been created and makes something out of it. God's the only creator. We don't believe in natural evolution, and we don't believe in spiritual evolution. Yet the theology of this world promotes spiritual evolution. They believe that you can do something to change your state, and that state's a state of death and sin. You cannot do that. We believe in the direct, immediate work of the Holy Spirit in the work of regeneration. 
How many will God regenerate? All that he foreknew and all that he predestinated. That's who he's going to call. And let's back up and get verse 28 just for a moment to straighten something out. Paul says, And we know that all things work together for good to them who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. The last time I checked, the devil and the Lord are not on the same team. The last time I checked, my spirit and my flesh are not cooperating together. My flesh and my spirit does not work together. God and the devil do not work together. Righteousness and unrighteousness does not work together. Light and darkness do not work together. Believe, believers and non-believers do not work together, but something works together. And we know that all things work together for good to who? To them that love the Lord. There are people who do not love the Lord, and this verse is not for them. This verse is for those who love the Lord, and he tells us why we love the Lord, who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. God calls people on purpose. He didn't call people accidentally. He didn't just call people at random. He calls people on purpose. Every child that belongs to him in the covenant relationship, the covenant of grace, belongs to him based upon the purpose of God, the good pleasure of Christ, belong to him based upon his eternal purpose, his purpose in having a family, loving a family, giving a, a people to his son before time again. It's all real simple to me. I don't want your minds corrupted in simplicity that's in Jesus Christ. I want you to rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ is a savior of sinners and he's never going to lose a one. I want you to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ as a savior of his family, of his children, and not one whom Christ has died for shall be left behind. Not one whom Christ has died for shall be lost. Not one drop of the blood of the savior shall be wasted. I'm telling you, he didn't die in vain for anybody. If one died, that Christ died for is in hell, my friends, that means his blood would be shed in vain and somebody he loved would be lost. And you know that's not the truth. You know that's not the truth. I'm not here this morning trying to preach to you a scare you, scare you doctrine. You, you knew better than that before you got here. <laughs> but a lot of people hear that. They hear a message that's trying to scare them <laughs> into escaping hell. They don't want to go to heaven so much they just don't want to go to hell. Well, I don't blame them for that part, but I'm telling you here this morning, the message of grace is a message of comfort to God's people. It brings peace and consolation and comfort to their hearts and to their souls and gives them strength and energy and, and the, 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 you know, the desire to fight uh, one more day here in this world, in this cold and hard and cruel world we live in here. But Jesus Christ, my friends, is on the right hand of God and making intercession for you. And he knows for whom he died for and he laid his life down for. And one day they'll all be with him in glory. I think this is pretty simple to me. <laughs> comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, thus saith the Lord. Declaring in Jerusalem that a warfare is over and been accomplished. You know, when World War II, and I'm sure this is true probably of every war that's ever been fought, but when World War II was over and the treaties had been signed, there were still people in this world who hadn't heard about it, didn't know about it, but that didn't change the fact it was over. And when they found out about it, it was happiness, wasn't it? It was joy. And some of the Lord's people, 
A lot of the Lord's people will live in this world here and they will never come to a knowledge of, the, of their salvation in Jesus Christ, but it's not based upon their knowledge. It's based upon knowing Christ in the heart and God will see to it they all know him. John 6, 45, it's written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Every single one will be taught of God. I've been trying to teach you this morning about God, but I cannot teach you to know God. Only God can do that, and thank God he will do that. And I close with this exception in John 6 and 44. When the Lord Jesus Christ said, No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. As it's written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Notice the exception. No man can come unto me except, except what? The Father draw him. You know why you love the Lord today? Because sometime in your past God drew you. He drew you by his irresistible grace. He drew you by his irresistible power. He touched your heart and changed your life and changed your heart and gave you a heart transplant. He took out the heart and stony heart and gave you a heart of flesh. He gave you a spirit inside of you where that you can love him, believe in him and trust in him and call upon him in truth and believe that he is indeed your advocate sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high and he's there to, to help you along life's pathway. That's why you do. I believe in the irresistible grace of Christ from that point of view. God has never offered salvation to a single individual in this world, not one. But he's certainly given eternal life to as many as the Father hath given unto him.